Hey, Night Church. My name's Paul, if I haven't met you. And it's my privilege to, to walk us through this topic today. And I need prayer. You need prayer. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come to your word today, that you would speak to us through it. I pray that you would help us not to preside over your word or presume that we know better, but that we'd come patiently, humbly, and carefully as we consider what you say through your word. And Lord, I pray for tonight, especially for those for whom marriage is a sensitive topic, I pray that you would uh, help me to be sensitive um, and that you would be with them, um, comforting and guiding them by your word. I pray this in your name. Amen. As Elise has mentioned, you've joined us uh, on our journey through roles and relationships. Uh, we looked at gender last week. And in the weeks to come, we'll be looking at sex, sexuality, and singleness. And so even though I won't be able to cover everything that there is to say about marriage and gender today, I'm hoping that, um, that those other talks will help to fill in some of those missing pieces. But I do think it's really important that we do spend this week looking at marriage and gender. Uh, not just the married ones amongst us, but all of us slowing down and looking at, again at what the Bible has to say about marriage and gender. One reason I think it's important is that I think our culture at large seems to be more and more lost about what marriage is. See, in culture, in movies, in the news, I generally hear marriage described as something like this, a, a formal declaration of mutual affection between two people. That is to say, it's a way of publicly and officially saying that I love you. It's a way of saying, let's do this, let's do this love thing. And the point of doing it publicly and formally is so that um, it can be endorsed by the community and by the state. That's how I generally hear um, marriage spoken about in the media today, but that's had a huge shift in the last 50 years. According to culture, um, marriage was a, uh, a symbol of a significant shift in the life stage. Marriage was a symbol of moving in together, having kids and settling down. But those things are slowly being kind of separated from marriage. It's fascinating just how much things have changed in the last 50 years. Some of you have lived through it. Some of you have not. Um, so let me show you uh, what the statistics tell us. Uh, in 1975, the, the percentage of people who lived together before marriage was just 16%. But now it's the vast majority, majority at 81%. Uh, so um, living together is no longer kind of that. Uh, part of marriage that it once was. Children too, this is the percentage of children that are born outside of marriage, and you can see that it has also skyrocketed in the past 50 years, going from around uh, one in 20 kids to a fairly normal kind of one in three. And so that is to say, if you pick a, a complete random couple who are about to get married from Australia, you can be pretty confident they'll be living together, and there's a good chance they've already got kids. Uh, that's a, a really big shift in the last 50 years. And with all those things removed from the commitment of marriage, marriage is beginning to lose its, its meaning. It's, it's becoming a, a thinner version of itself. And many are choosing simply not to get married or, or marrying much later. So that this last one, uh, follow the orange line on this one. Uh, the orange line here is the rate of marriages per 1,000 people. And you can see it's about a third of what it was about 50 years ago. But what I want to show you today is that God's view from, of marriage is so much brighter and richer and more satisfying than anything our culture could offer. And I'm not just talking about putting sex and kids and houses back into the marriage basket. 
I'm talking about redefining marriage from the ground up, turning away from, for a second, from our culture's shifting sands of marriage that is so often confused or hollow. I'm going to turn again to the solid and beautiful picture of marriage painted in the Bible. We've already got a bit of a head start on that. Last week, we saw the creation of Adam and Eve, of man and woman. And in particular, we saw the need for them to to be both alike and different, to be male and female, uh, and and, uh, that male and female work together perfectly in partnership. So today, we're going to start at the climax of that story in Genesis 2, that, that very first wedding ceremony conducted by God himself. Um, so let's, let's dive into the text. I hope you've got your Bibles open. We're in Genesis 2, and we'll see where we'll see God's design for marriage. We're going to pick up in just towards the end in verse 23. We've already seen God create Adam, recognize that it was not good for, for there to be only man, and so he created Eve. And in verse 23, we get the moment that Adam's been waiting for. He's been searching everywhere, watching, waiting for, for the partner that God has for him. And in verse 23, as soon as he sees her, he bursts out into poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then, curiously, the author breaks from the flow of the narrative for the first time to, to give us a comment on what's happening here. In verse 24, he says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Do you see how that last verse, that, that's not a part of the story, it's a reflection on the story. And the reason that's significant is that it tells us that what's happening here is, in the first marriage is not just anecdotally the case, it's not just an, an example of a marriage, it's a paradigm for marriage, it's a pattern of God's good design for marriage. And it's in these verses that we see one man and one woman come together under God for one lifetime. That's the kind of summary I've given on your sheets. Um, Jesus actually picks up on these verses and, and affirms that design as well. For, for one man and one woman under God for a lifetime. So let, let me read to you and just listen out for those four elements. See if you can see how many you can pick up on. One man, one woman, one God, one life. Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will know uh, the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what god has joined together let no one separate i wonder how many of those four elements you caught uh, he emphasizes right at the beginning male and female god created them male and female and it's clear throughout that there's only two people involved um one male, one man, and one woman. That's the first two ticked. Uh, what that tells us is that um, God's pattern for marriage is intended to be heterosexual, monogamous, and exclusive. If it's one man and one woman only, that means it's heterosexual, monogamous, and exclusive. Uh, we saw that it was a marriage under God. That's the, that's the third element there, because who is it that joins them together in marriage? It's not the couple that join together in marriage. It's, it's not the minister who joins them together in marriage. It's God himself. God is the giver of the union of marriage. Uh, God, that tells us that God is there, kind of joining together a couple when they get married. We'll see, we'll see later on that God is not only the giver of marriage, but, the, but even, actually even the goal of marriage. Come to that right at the end. But the final thing we, we need to see there, that, that fourth, fourth element, uh, we see there in his experience, his explanation of one flesh, that if they're joined together and should not be separated. 
It's a picture of a fundamental change at marriage, as though their lives are divided into two halves, before marriage and after marriage. At that point, they leave their father and mother and become one flesh. And, and there is a whole new paradigm of family life. And the, the inseparability that he talks about affirms that, that this is a lifelong fundamental shift, uh, a lifelong commitment of marriage. And so there we have it. Jesus affirms the teaching of Genesis 2, of one man and one woman under God for life. And I just want to pause on that last, um, last, last part of it for a second for a couple of reasons. One is that um, I think that's something that our culture is kind of lost sight of a little bit, that lifelong commitment. And the second is because uh, there's something really curious that happens at the end of the chapter in Genesis. If you've still got your finger in Genesis, look back there. The story doesn't end with that verse of commentary as though it kind of it all happens and then he gives us this verse explaining what's happened. It actually steps back into the narrative just for one final curious observation. Verse 25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now that's, that's curious, isn't it? Why, why come back in for that one last comment? Why is it so significant that he wants to insert it there? And, and why there? Why wait until the very end to give us that? Well, this is given to us, I think, as, as a picture of security. It's not about them having nothing to hide. It's not about, they're not unashamed because they had perfect bodies. They're unashamed because they are secure in the love of their spouse. They're exposed, they're known, they're vulnerable, and they're completely loved. And that, that's a beautiful image, I think. And why wait until the very end to give us that observation? I think it's because it flows directly out of them becoming one flesh, that, that fundamental shift that we saw, them being brought together in unity, they're together now, and they're not worried about whether they are good enough, are lovable, whether they're the right person, whether they're with the right person, they are unashamed before one another because they know that they are loved and secure regardless. See, there is a, a safety in the promise of a lifelong commitment under God. I was at a wedding re- recently, um, a really beautiful, stunning w- w- wedding. Um, and the, the vows surprised me. I, I could summarize the vows in five words. Uh, the, the groom said something, and in a lot more words, something to this effect, you make me so happy. Um, and it was really lovely. I, I saw a different side of the groom, a beautiful sweetness and softness that I hadn't seen before. But having been to a lot of weddings that use the, the traditional Anglican vows, I was a bit surprised not to hear more than that. If there was any sense of, of commitment, it was the notion that I, I know that I'll love you forever. And I actually felt like, I, it actually felt like a lot of pressure because if happiness is the foundation of their marriage, if what they're thereafter is a happily ever after story, I feel like that's a lot of pressure to live up to. The vows I'm used to, that they don't just talk about happy times ahead. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or not, but the traditional Anglican vows talk about in sickness and in health, for better and for worse, for richer and for poorer, until death do us part. Because marriage is not a declaration of affection and it's not a happily ever after. Marriage is a promise. And there is safety in the promise of a lifelong commitment. One that doesn't rely on your happiness or your wealth status or your satisfaction or your success as a partner, but rather on your promise. 
And I think that's the picture that we get from, from Genesis 2 and, and the rest of the Bible as it goes on. That's, that's the definition of marriage we have. of so one man and one woman united under God for life. And there is a real security in a lifetime commitment under God. But the second question I want to ask is, what does it actually look like to live out a marriage, particularly as a male and a female? And I want to show you again that when it comes to, to living it out, the Bible's view is once again much brighter, richer, and more satisfying than what our culture offers. But it is not always easy. Because at the heart of biblical marriage is a surrendering of self. Marriage is a lifelong commitment to mutual sacrifice, love, and respect, and service. Now we're going to be mainly in uh, 1 Peter 3, for this section. So flick there, if you, if you will. Um, and this, it, it is a trickier passage. I've spoken to married couples for whom this passage is a bit like, feels a bit like a rock stuck in the, the shoe of their marriage. It's slightly uncomfortable and they're not sure what to do with it, but they, they keep walking on. Um, and so to, to stretch the metaphor a little bit too far, uh, I wonder if tonight might be the night to, to take off the shoe, inspect it, work out where's that rock, find out how to kind of live comfortably with it um, because I do think that that God's word is beautiful and uh, and rich so um, the passage starts with instruction to women with the line wives in the same way submit to your own husbands and we can get uncomfortable at that for all sorts of reasons and so I want to say a couple of things by way of preface one it's worth acknowledging in case you hadn't worked it out, that I am not a woman. Um, this means that I haven't got a lot of experience of what it looks like to, to live marriage out as a woman. Um, Sophie has been a great help to me in preparing this sermon, but uh, you'll have to bear with me if I phrase things in a way that's unhelpful or uncomfortable. Uh, second uh, is to recognize that somehow I have managed to fight the urge to go and lick every uh, shopping mall handrail for the past week. <laughs> Uh, to, to fight off the part of me that would rather be in isolation than stand up in front of a crowd and talk about submission in marriage. Uh, but the reason for that, and the thir third thing I want to say, <laughs> the third thing is that I do trust in God's Word. Uh, I do believe that what God teaches here is beautiful and dignified and worthwhile. It can be tricky to work out and, and we'll get things wrong, but it's worth the wrestle. So would you come and... and uh, wrestle with this passage together. One of the things that makes this passage uncomfortable, I think, is that a lot of us hear words like submit and obey, and many of us uh, conjure up an image of uh, suppressing their wills, of, of putting our feelings aside and, and follow the orders that you're given, like a soldier in an army to submit to your superior. And so you can see why, if that's what we hear, contemporary people might be uncomfortable with that, this idea. You might even share some of their uncomfortableness or anger at the notion. But what I hope to show you from the text today is that this, the instructions here are not about weakness and inferiority, but the Bible's call to submission is a call to something strong and noble and beautiful and dignified. So let's jump into to 1 Peter 3. I hope you've still got it open. To set the stage, I want you to notice three things just about that very first verse. To start with, the very first word, Wives. That's the first thing to notice. Uh, th this is addressed to wives, which means if, if you are a man, this part is, is not addressed to you. If you're a husband, 
It's not your job to make your wife submit. This is a voluntary submission, not a forced one. Second is to notice that it's wives. It says, submit to your own husbands. Notice the word own. That means that there is a uniquely fitting submission to your own husband that is not fitting in relation to other men. A wife is not called to submit to all men in the way they might to their husband. And the third is the phrase in the middle there, uh, wives in the same way. Submit to your husbands. That, that this points to the fact that the instructions given here are part of a broader picture. In fact, if you read, it, read back, you'll see that submission is not just an instruction given to women, but to all Christians. Men and women, husbands and wives, slaves are free. All Christians are encouraged to take the same posture to submit. See, submission is not a uniquely feminine trait in the Bible. Submission is a Christian trait. Elsewhere, Jesus is described as submitting to the Father. Elsewhere, Christians are invited to submit to one another. And just earlier here in 2 verse 13, Peter says to Christians, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And so submission is a Christian virtue, but why are Christians called to submit? I think there's, there's two things that, that, two ways that we see the world differently. The first is that the Christian worldview is one that sees the world created by God as inherently ordered. Not born of chaos or chance, but order. Now, the second is that the Christian doesn't put themselves first. The Christian is called to lay your, the Christian calling is one to lay your life down in humility to consider others above yourself. And so those are the two key elements of the biblical concept of submission, locating yourself in a world of order as created by God and honoring others above yourself. Now, that's how it applies to the broad instructions for all Christians. But as we look today at marriage, that there is a, a more narrow call. In fact, a very narrow call, as we saw, it, it only applies to one person in the world. And to many of us, no one, because that one person is your own husband. And so we need to ask the question today, what, what does submission look like in a marriage? What, what does this instruction mean um, for a wife? And if submission in general is about trusting God's created order and honoring others above yourself, and submission within a marriage is about tr- trusting that God's design, for, uh, that God's design for order within a marriage is a good thing, and therefore it's about honoring and affirming your own husband and his leadership. Let me say that again. Uh, it's about trusting that God's design for order within a marriage is a good thing, and therefore it's about honoring and affirming your own husband and his leadership. Submission does not mean begrudging obedience to your superior. It does not mean putting up with abuse. It's about trusting God's design and loving, honoring, and affirming your husband and his leadership. Now, I'm guessing you probably still have heaps of questions about this passage, about this concept. Um, Feel free to ask me afterwards, or better yet, ask a godly married woman who has actually lived this out. Um, But... Um, but I want to turn now to, to the men, to that husband's decision to love, understand, and respect. Now, the biblical, biblical category is often termed headship, where the final responsibility falls, but this passage, I think, really helpfully brings out another side of that. I've noticed the two key elements in the instruction to men. Uh, it's, it's in verse 7. One is being considerate or, or living with understanding, and the other is uh, showing respect. And both of those can take hard work. 
But men, it is your job to, or husbands, it is your job to seek understanding, to work out how to be considerate. Um, this biblical view of headship does not mean steaming ahead and making all the decisions that you think are right or you think are best. It means giving up what is best for you and leading in a way that is best for your family, to be considerate of them, being careful to understand what is best for them. The second is it is um, living with respect. And I, it, it, so it says here, um, treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. It's worth addressing that, that term weaker partner. That, that's not a put down. Um, but let's recognize that what's it described above is a posture of vulnerability. It's a, it's a position of vulnerability. If your wife has decided to take on a position of submission to honor and affirm your leadership, then that is a, a vulnerable position, that you ought to be very careful not to abuse that. I think that's at least a part of what he means here by treat her with respect as a weaker partner, to show her a deep sense of respect, not least as one who has chosen to love, honor, and affirm you and your leadership. So that's, I think, the Bible's picture of Mutual sacrificial love, respect, and sacrifice. For, for both partners, it looks like laying down of yourself for the sake of the other. But for each partner, there is a particularity to that as male and female. And when Sophie and I were engaged, someone preached this passage at her church and encouraged every husband to ask their wives that day, do you feel loved? Not am I loving or how am I going out of 10, but an honest, honest conversation, do you feel loved? And they encouraged every wife to ask their husband, do you feel respected? And we found that such a helpful conversation that we made it a regular practice. Every few months, we'd ask those same questions. And sometimes the answer was, yes, I, I, I really do. Thank you for the way that dot, dot, dot. Other times it's been, uh, well, do you remember when you said this to your family? Or, or I've actually been feeling quite insecure about this or that. Um, whatever the answer was, it was such a helpful um, starter for us for honest conversation. It was challenging at times, but it gave us reason to fight for a better marriage. And it might not work for every couple, but why not try it? If you're, if you're a married woman, why not ask your husband if they feel respected? If you're a married man, why not ask your wife today if they feel loved? Because I think we'll often learn a lot from those conversations. And that leads pretty well into our last section. I want to speak to you briefly about the reality of marriage now. Because I think the, the, the picture the Bible paints of marriage is a genuinely beautiful picture of a man and a woman laying down their lives for one another in perfect unity. But the reality of marriage is very often far from that. We've been looking at Genesis 2 at the very first marriage, beautiful and innocent and shameless. But it's only a few paragraphs later that the two of them together fall into sin and things start to go pear-shaped. Which means that now, with sin in the picture, it will also mean that, that some of us find ourselves in situations that we don't want to be. Some of us may find ourselves unmarried for any number of reasons when we'd rather be married. Others will find that being married is not what we thought it would be. Uh, I've heard some people describe marriage like this. They say marriage in this life is two sinful people coming close enough to see all of their flaws and faults very clearly every day. It's an encouraging picture, isn't it? Um, 
the reality is, with sin in the picture, there will come a time in every marriage when you have to fight for your marriage. For many marriages, there may come a time when it feels like the easiest thing to do would be to walk away. For some marriages, there may come a time when it feels like nothing can be done. And marriage's ending is a sensitive topic and a talk for another day. But if you're at the point where you're really battling right now, please do reach out to someone here at church. Because sadly, with with sin in the picture, broken relationships of all sorts are a reality in our world. And that's where it becomes a great comfort to know that marriage here was only ever supposed to be a glimpse of something, of, of of a much greater story an object lesson in the love of God for his people. So come with me to our last stop, Ephesians 5. Um, We saw in Genesis the commentary where the author steps back to recognize that it's for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. We saw Jesus expand on that in in Matthew 19. But I want to draw you now to Ephesians 5.31 where that same line is picked up again. And it describes this verse as something that was a mystery something that was long hidden and is now revealed. It says this, in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Saying for thousands of years, there was a mystery about marriage. For thousands of years, people would read that part of Genesis and never fully understand it. Because what we learn here is that this teaching on marriage was never just about marriage between a man and a woman. It's also there to show us something about Christ and the church. Now we see see in the rest of Ephesians 5 how Jesus exemplified sacrificial love and leadership. His love for you held nothing back and had expected nothing in return. He laid down, his, laid down his life for the church. He had no reason to do, and he had no reason to do anything for the church except that the church was his bride, his beloved. So whether you're married or not, whether your marriage is going well or not, here's why marriage matters. Christian, you are the beloved bride of Christ. Church, you are the beloved bride of Christ. He has laid down his life for you and calls you to himself. See, our marriages are not for our happiness. They're not even primarily for our growth. Marriage is given to us to point us to a better story, an object lesson in the love of God for his people. And I think we've seen glimpses of that today. We saw in Genesis 2 that marriage is about one man and one woman united under God for life. And when we fight for those lifelong commitments to live out those promises, we're reminded of God's promises to us, his people. We saw in 1 Peter 3 that living marriage out is an act of laying oneself down in sacrificial love, respect and service. And when sacrificial love is difficult, we're reminded of the difficult love that Christ has shown to us. And whether that's by trusting God's good order and choosing to honor and affirm your husband, or whether it's by laying down your life in respect and care of your wife we're reminded of the way that jesus submitted himself to the father's will and laid down his life for the sake of his bride the church 
And finally, when our experience of marriage here is not what we hope it will be, we can know where our longings lead. And we can hope that for that day when we will appear before Christ as his bride, beautifully dressed in his righteousness. And so let me finish with uh, these words of Scripture. This is the hope that we can all long for. Revelations, Revelation 19 uh, anticipates what is to come with these words. It says, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, is given to her to wear. And the fine linen stands for the righteousness of God's holy people. That's our ultimate hope for marriage, is, is that one day we will be perfect, united in perfect love with Christ himself. That we, the church, will be united forever with Christ. And so would you pray with me, as, just, just to close, that that would be our hope and what, what we long for. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for Christ's unconditional love for his people. We thank you that he laid down his life um, for us, his beloved bride. And we thank you that uh, one day we'll be united in perfect love with him. And we long for that day. Pray that you'll bring it soon. Amen.